Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, what about that website, GEDmatch? It's gotten a lot of attention recently, especially in its involvement in cold cases, possibly using your DNA. Hi, I'm Fisher, and I'll be talking to the co-founder of GEDmatch.com, Curtis Rogers, about the site, its history, what motivates him, and what's happening now as so many people are opting back in to have their DNA used for law enforcement purposes. Plus, we'll talk to a couple of people from the New York Adoptees' Rights Coalition about their recent victory in the New York State Legislature allowing adoptees to obtain their original birth certificates. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect. A presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. I am Fisher, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. And I'm very excited to report that I've finally been able to get schedules together with Curtis Rogers. He is the co-founder of GEDmatch.com. If you are unfamiliar with GEDmatch, it is a third-party DNA matching service, and we'll get into what that means a little bit later on in the show. And it's free. And this is also the place that it's been largely responsible for the solving of over 50 cold cases around the country. And, of course, there's been some debate over them of late. And so Curtis has come on. We're going to talk about how GEDmatch started, what it does, where it's going, and what's happening with the new opt-ins for law enforcement. Do they have enough yet? to help law enforcement continue their efforts to solve cold cases, and also how you can do that, how you can get that taken care of if you're a subscriber to the free site, GEDmatch.com. Then later in the show, I'll be excited to talk to Annette and Greg. They're with the New York Adoptee Rights Coalition. They had a huge victory in New York State that's going to allow adoptees from that state to finally access their original birth certificates. It's a big deal. We'll tell you more about that coming up. Up later on in the show. Right now, it's time to head out to Boston and talk to David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. Hello, David. Hello, sir. How are you today? You know, I am excited. We got a great show lined up here today, and not the least of which begins with this whole thing with New York adoptions that took place this last week. Big move in the state legislature there. In fact, the vote 145 to 6 goes to show you that adoptees will finally be able to get their birth records. Start applying in January 15, 2020 to get their original unsealed birth record. Isn't that amazing? And as you know, David, I found a new second cousin back in February. Well, he's not that new. He's 65 years old. But we solved his birth family through DNA at that time. But now for him to be able to see the actual record of his birth and confirm what we already know from DNA, DNA, that's going to mean the world to him, I'm sure for many, many other adoptees that are out there. This is one of only a few states that actually has this available in the country. Yeah, there's only 10 of them now. Well, I'll tell you, the genealogical news is always exciting when we're talking about DNA. And there's a great article in The Guardian 
called What Does It Mean to Be Genetically Jewish? And you can find that linked on Extreme Genes on our news. And basically, if you've ever come across a percentage of Ashkenazi Jewish in your DNA, this is now being looked at by rabbis over in Israel to determine how Jewish you actually are to be married within the faith. Yeah, isn't that something? And and I know there are a lot of people of uh, Jewish background, say, in Eastern Europe and Germany that want nothing to do with DNA because they obviously fear that something could come up again sometime in the future and that would be used against them. And now here they are in Israel using this technique to prove the Jewishness of people so that they can be married within the faith. I mean, it's uh, causing quite a controversy. And you can read the story in its uh, entirety on ExtremeGenes.com. On a sadder note, but kind of a happy ending, two genealogists started looking into separate paths of their family tree. Hiram, who is a descendant of an African-American gal that was in the Parchman Penitentiary for a domestic issue back in the 1920s, and the other person is the grandnephew of the warden in Mississippi. They have a connection. Unfortunately, it's by a sexual assault by the warden on this young lady that was in the prison. And so they find out they're related, and as a result of this DNA match, they determined that this one man's great uncle was the warden and is Hiram's grandfather. That's true. In fact, she was very pregnant by the time that she got out of prison and had the baby soon after. But the two of them, now they're very good friends. And And obviously related. Yeah, exactly. 90 years ago, a crime. 90 years later, a friendship and a new family found. So it, DNA is quite an amazing tool in genealogy. The stories it, uh, never end, do they? They really don't. Well, that's about all I have from Beantown for you this week, Fish. All right, David. Thank you so much. Talk to you again next week. And I am so excited to have the co-founder of Jedmatch on the line with me today, Curtis Rogers. We've been trying to match schedules now for weeks. And Curtis, welcome to Extreme Genes. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Boy, you have been the talk of the business here for the last year plus. And I think a year and a half ago, only the geniest of genies really knew much about GEDmatch because it's such a unique tool. It's a third-party tool for people doing DNA matches. I want to get a little of your background and what made you think of doing this site and what's your motivation? Well, the motivation is strictly to provide tools to fellow genealogists to help them in their exploration of their family trees. I started GEDmatch in 2010, about nine years ago, coming up on 10 years. And the purpose of it then was to compare family trees by using a computer. This is when autosomal DNA first came in. And when that happened, people were suddenly discovering that they had relatives that were living as opposed to looking at Y-DNA or mitochondrial DNA where any matches could be well before paper trail distance. Suddenly they knew they had relatives that were living and they wanted to compare family trees. And I had a person that I had been working with on another website that was technically very capable and I asked him, could he come up with a program in which people could compare family trees using a computer? compare the names, compare the places where they live, compare the times that they live in those places, and match family trees that way and save all these hours of emails. Well, he came up with a program that was so good, I said, this is just too good for my other little website that I had. It was a surname project for the Rogers. And I said, we better start a whole new website for this and share it with a lot more people than 
than my little site that I had then. Wow. So that was the beginning of GEDmatch. And so from there, it evolved into a DNA comparison site. And when did that take place then? Was that right at the beginning there at 2010? That was uh, probably about a year later. It became obvious that that would be a big step forward for us. But anyway, we're called Jed Match because we're comparing Jed Toms. Yeah. I'd wondered about that. You've kind of outlived the name, haven't you, really? We we really have, except the name is so accepted that I'd hate to change it now. Sure, I think you're absolutely right about that. So you didn't write the algorithms. You're just a passionate genie. I know that you're based in Florida. In fact, in my wife's hometown there in uh, in Lake Worth, which is a great little town. How much time do you personally devote to this all the time? I know you don't make any money off of this thing. It's just a service that you've done for all of us. And we're I know that I speak for millions of genealogists that were so appreciative of what you've done because there have been so many things that have been discovered as a result of your project. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a free site, and we want to keep it that way as much as possible. We do have some tremendous expenses, so we do have one area where we charge $10 a month, but this is not a big money no. maker, believe me. <laughs> and we, People tend to think of us as being a big company. And we're not. We have no employees. This is my partner and myself, and we have another three people who volunteer pretty much on a regular basis. And that's it. But we want to keep it that way so it is free and available to as many people as possible. Wow. And you've got some amazing tools on there. Who came up with the one, Are Your Parents Related? Who even thinks of that? (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. That was my partner. He thought of that one. (laughs) Uh, I guess it's a pretty obvious thing to do from a technical point of view. And so he came up with it. It is an interesting one. Well, and, you know, I've spoken to many DNA specialists, and they say when they run some of their clients through GEDmatch, that's often the first thing they do is compare and see if the folks are related. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? That's That is interesting. Yeah, I suppose that could come up with some really interesting results. Yes, absolutely. So now let's fast forward. We've gone through the history. You started out trying to compare trees, and then it became comparing DNA and these really nifty little features that people had never seen before, and it's all free. And now, in early 2018, suddenly GEDmatch splashes across the world because there are people using your site in order to do genetic genealogy to solve cold cases. And the Golden State Killer case comes along. And what was your reaction to it when that case was solved as a result of your site? I was surprised. I was confused. I was really concerned as to how this might affect the genealogy community and especially the genetic genealogy community and you know it took me about two weeks of not sleeping and trying to wrap my head around just what was happening how this case was solved how we were involved how the total genetic community genealogy community is involved and i eventually came up with a realization that there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it the genie was out of the bottle Mm -hmm. yeah and therefore, that the one thing we could do is to be as open and honest as, and aggressive in telling our users that this is something that was happening. Law enforcement was using this site. And so we embarked on a campaign to make sure that they were informed as, as well as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I would imagine, and I've thought about this a lot, trying to put myself in your shoes with where this goes. 
like you say, the genie was out of the bottle. I love that genie thing there. And suddenly you're trying to figure out something. It's just it moved so quickly that you really have to take a breath and to a certain extent take a step back because there are people who are reacting in fear and there are people who are reacting with joy because they can help law enforcement solve crimes like this. And so many have been solved since the Golden State Killer case 14, 15 months ago at this point. And I can only imagine that as, as things kind of they started to spin out of control because you just couldn't stay ahead of it the entire time. Yes. Yeah. I, what we tried to do, what I tried to do is keep in mind that we are a genealogical website mm-hmm. and everything that we did really should be filtered through that. Does it help the genealogical community? And so I've tried to use that filter to, to make the best decisions possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is no uh, written guidelines that I could follow. No, nobody's ever been where you've been with something like that, right? That's true. And, and you've got the question then, okay, as we go about this, what are we going to limit the use of our site to? And initially you decided it was going to be sexual assaults and cold case murders, which I think is a pretty safe threshold that an awful lot of people agreed with there. And uh, did you consider other levels of crime at that time? That was the level that was suggested by our attorney at the time. And it sounded reasonable. I agree with you. But then there was a case in Utah, which was almost that, but just not exactly that. And we realized that we needed to expand that definition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then that's obviously where all the trouble started within the last uh, month or so. And uh, what a story that's been. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit in the next segment. But I just wanted to kind of get the background, because the last year, I would assume that everything within your company has evolved almost as much in the last year as it did in all the years before it. Yes? <laughs> well, not in terms of necessarily increase in kits. They have always increased at a pretty steady rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's continued pretty much the same rate, surprisingly. What are you at right uh, now? How many, how many kits are in JedMatch? Right now, we're essentially at a million two hundred and fifty thousand. Wow, one and a quarter million. Well, and that's why it's so helpful for so many people. Yeah. And and they're from all the well, different sites, right? The proprietary ones that provide the kits and all that. You don't provide DNA kits for people who are not familiar with GEDmatch. It's just a place for you to take your results and compare it across the board to the various companies. And this is why you started Genesis, right? There was Genesis GEDmatch that you had up till recently. Was it a kit thing? Is that how it worked? Yeah. When we first started out, there were just two or three genealogical testing companies, Family Tree DNA, Ancestry, 23andMe, and they were all pretty much the same. We never advertised or promoted our product. We still have not. Don't want to push people into using GEDmatch because I think it's something that has to be a free choice type of thing. Mm-hmm. We started with with uh, those few companies, and as time progressed, they started moving away from the original data that they were collecting. And also there were other testing companies that came into the field, and they wanted to use GEDmatch. The people that were tested by them did. At this point, we have over 20 different testing companies from around the world. I didn't even know there were that Uh, many out there. That's incredible. Well, there are. For example, the largest testing company in Russia is called Atlas. 
Now, you probably have never heard of it, but nope. we have people on our site from who are tested by Atlas. It's becoming a very popular thing, believe it or not, in China. People huh. are getting interested in genealogy. And there are two testing companies there. So you had uh, to that, somehow that, find that, a way to kind of merge these all together and make it work. Exactly, exactly. And that's why we had Genesis. Okay, um, and, and now Genesis was, was, is gone and you're back to GEDmatch.com, right? Yes, but using the uh, Genesis format that we developed. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was beta for a long time, so we called it Genesis, but it's no longer beta. Uh, it's proven itself, and it's where we have now moved all of our information into that, what was formerly called Genesis, and, and we've now gone back to the name GEDmatch. We've talked a lot about the background of the company. and uh, Do I even call it a company, Curtis? You don't make any money. <laughs> well... Yeah, that's true. It is incorporated. In that sense, you can call it a company, but it's really just a a few of us volunteers who are here trying to produce information and tools that can be used by other fellow genealogy researchers. Well, I know you've done some great stuff for all of us, but the last few months, though, you've really gotten a lot of attention. Let's see. I saw you on 60 Minutes touring your little house there in Florida where you house all this stuff. And there have been uh, articles and podcasts and blogs in the New York Times and quite a debate about the slippery slope, potentially, that is genetic genealogy. And I can only imagine that this has been a rather stressful period for you and those that you're involved with trying to figure out the right thing to do. You mentioned earlier about the Utah case. And just to review for people who aren't familiar with it, this is the case that really caused the problems here for Curtis and Jed Match. And in that case, there was a woman who was practicing an organ in her church on a Saturday night preparing to do her performance during Sunday services. Somebody broke into the church, broke a window, left some blood there, went in and strangled this woman to unconsciousness several times. It was really more like an attempted murder than it was an assault. And somehow she survived it, and this person broke off the attack and left. And for months, they had no idea where to look for this individual. They then sought out to do genetic genealogy using Parabon Nanolabs and GEDmatch. So this is the point now where you get the call from the detective in Centerville, Utah, Curtis, and he explains these details of the case to you. And you have to make a decision because you had your terms of service that you had set that involved only cold case murders and sexual assaults. This didn't really fit into that. And now you had to make a choice and you chose to allow them to go ahead and test through GEDmatch and Parabon. Talk about your thinking at that time and how you felt about it and how you feel about it now. It was perhaps the wrong decision that was made for the right reasons. When this happened, and I spoke to the detective and he explained what had happened, this came as close to a murder as possible. Attempted Uh, murder, yeah. This woman was left unconscious and presumably that she was dead in the eyes of the attacker. Anyway. My background is psychology. I have a master's degree in psychology. And immediately when I hear this case, when I was talking to the detective, I was thinking in terms of a psychopath. Mm -hmm. And there was no motive. This woman was 71 years old, a church organist, not someone who was a personal enemy. There was no sexual attack apparently involved. It was apparently done just for the thrill of doing it. 
And that to me is a psychopath. Now, in talking to the detective, I did not mention the word psychopath. Neither one of us did. But he was saying that he felt that there could be another person harmed very easily. Yeah, that he could strike again, absolutely, at any time. And it was that fear that maybe that could happen again that led me to say, yeah, let's let's get this guy now. And knowing now what I do know after this perpetrator was arrested, I think it was the right decision. From everything I hear, it reinforces what I was thinking at that time. Mm -hmm. So I think it was the right thing to do. I know that the court case has certainly begun for this guy. By the way, for people who don't know, he's 17 years old. He's a high school student, and they were able to match his DNA to the crime scene by taking a cup that he drank in the school cafeteria and doing a comparison to that. And then, of course, they did a swab once they did the arrest, and it all matched up. So that's where it stands uh, right now. And, of course, as we all know, everybody's presumed innocent until proven guilty. But nonetheless, it is uh, great to know that this guy is in custody. And, Curtis, as you look back on it now, you obviously said it was the wrong choice but for the right reason. Is there any other way you could have done it other than the way you did by saying, hey, we're going to make an exception to our terms of service? The only other way is to say, no, you cannot use our website. This guy would still be out there. It's just yes or no. And I'm sure I'm certain there are people who live in that area who are very grateful this guy is off the streets. Yeah. And the way you describe this that happened, that he was found, is the way we work. And I think it's important that people understand the way genetic genealogy works. We do not, in genetic genealogy, find suspects. We do not find the person who did it. What we find are a person of interest. Mm-hmm. Typically, in a cold case, what happens is they don't have a person of interest. They have maybe some evidence from the crime scene. But they have no person that they can put that against. And so the case goes cold. In the case of the Golden State Killer, there was no relationship between he and his victims. He chose them randomly. Mm -hmm. So you had no person. Yeah, they'd never been looking at that guy. Same thing here. We supply a person of interest. Now, as you described in this Utah case, once we provided, we being genetic genealogy, provided a person of interest, then police have to start their investigation from there to prove that, yes, this person that they were given is or is not the suspect, the person who actually did it. In this case, they had to go and make sure that he was in the area, that he had the ability. And ultimately, they had to do another DNA test to make sure that this was the right person. Yep. So that's what happens in genealogy. We're not supplying criminals. We are supplying persons of interest, and it's up to the police to then go do their whole full investigation. Absolutely true. So as a result of all this, there was something of a firestorm. There were a lot of people talking about the slippery slope, that people are going to have their genetics used in a massive database for tracking and things. So there's a lot of fear going on there. And you and your partners made the decision to opt out all one and a quarter million users of GEDmatch from law enforcement and then say, we're still going to use it for law enforcement, but you must opt in. In. So the question now is, how many people have opted back in? I heard 150,000, but I suspect that's a little high. That's quite high. Uh, we're at about 85,000 at this point. So are you seeing a consistent rate with people opting back in? Or is it now that things have settled down a little bit, the growth is slowing? It's 
it's about a thousand a day. Thousand uh, a day. It's right, right at that level. Yeah. Okay. So this will take quite a long time, really, to get back to where we were. Do you have a campaign you're working on to maintain this, or is it just something that you're hoping will happen organically? No, we we did send out a letter to all of our users, yep. all of our people who are registered on our site, and that resulted in a big increase for a period of four or five days. And we plan to send out a reminder letter sometime in the near future. And there are still a lot of people that have not opted in. So we're not giving up. We're going to be aggressive in trying to get this database back up to par. And what is par? Is there a number that you think makes it almost as effective? Well, first of all, we don't need 1.25 million. A lot of those people are redundant. Some people have put their kid on two or three times. Hmm. Sometimes you have both parents. Well, if you have both parents, you also have all of their children. So I think if we get 500,000, I think we're probably as strong as we were prior to this happening. He's Curtis Rogers, co-founder of JedMatch.com. Fascinating talking to you, Curtis. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for what you've created for us in the genealogy field. It's uh, fascinating stuff. And I know you've been through a lot lately, but I'm glad that uh, you sound like you're fully back on your feet and have a plan moving forward that should keep everybody satisfied. It was my pleasure. We had some big news that happened this past week, and so we're going to forego the Ask Us Anything for this time around to uh, visit with some friends from the New York Adoptee Rights Coalition. And uh, Gregory Luce is on the line. He's in Minnesota. He's an attorney. And Annette O'Connell, she's a spokesperson in New York City. How are you guys doing? Doing well, thanks. about you? Boy, you are doing well, because just last week, a law passed the legislature that ended 84 years of adoptees not being able to obtain their original birth certificates. I watched a lot of the video from the website from the New York legislature. It was very emotional, and I can only imagine for you two, because both of you are adoptees. Correct. Indeed. It was remarkable. This is only the 10th state that has gotten what they call a clean bill so that adoptees can get their original birth certificates. Right. And the origin really of sealing these records, let's say in New York 83 years ago, wasn't about the shame of the of being out of wedlock. The sealing of the records and not making them available to the adoptee later was all about protecting the adoptive family from birth parent interference. That's what it was all about. It grew over time that opponents to opening in the records would say, well, no, we need this privacy issue of these shameful women yeah. who had births back in the 50s and 60s. And you would get a few women who would uh, express that sentiment, but it was the vast majority of them did not, and they were shamed into submission, essentially. Well, back in February, I got a DNA match just the day before I was heading off on a vacation to Mexico. And because I keep track of descendants of my eh, more recent ancestors, first grade, second grade, sometimes even third grades, I couldn't find where this guy came in because the shared matches told me he was my dad's mother's parents' great-grandson. I said, who are you? I said, I don't don't know who you are. And he wrote back and said, I don't know. I was adopted. Can you help me? 
And it's like, right. oh, I got to pack. I got to, but, but there was no way I was going to leave this guy sitting for 10 days because, you know, I know how to do these things. So we got talking that very day. He shared with me his DNA information. We figured out immediately who his birth mother likely was. He said, I've also got a couple of first cousins on here. And I looked at that and I said, no, 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 no. Those aren't first cousins. Those are half sisters. And wow. we were immediately able to identify his birth father. And, and, we, and we had pictures of both parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. But naturally, he wants to see his original certificate to validate what we did with the DNA. And now he's going to get the chance right. to do that. And you sort of outlined what's happened over time, too, as this law was still in place. And you have DNA now. You have social media. And this information, as you probably know, was shared much more widely through DNA registries and names of people and talking to third cousins or first cousins and half sisters just to identify who the parents were, as opposed to the sort of easy thing and more discreet thing is to apply for and get your original birth certificate. Yeah, and that's I, now going to happen in New York. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. It'll be the most discreet thing you can do. Right. I'd never thought of it right. that way. Exactly. I'm hoping because New York affects so many people. So many people are adopted out of New York that we're going to see what happens going forward, that this will open the floodgates elsewhere. And I'm sure you're going to have your work cut out for you, Greg. Yeah, it's already starting. I mean, we started in Texas last year, although it's been going on in Texas for quite some time. And we start to prioritize what other states look like they may be able to go in the next few years. I mean, there are some states that have a, a sort of a mix of laws that make it impossible to get a, sure. a bill that would have unrestricted access because they've already sort By of compromised intent, on no the doubt. By intent, yeah. I'm sure. And Annette, now that New York has kind of fallen here, I'm thinking there are 40 other states that don't have clean bills that allow adoptees to obtain their original birth certificates. What's next, and how can people go to town trying to figure out how they can make these laws change? Yeah, that's what we're thinking, too. The rest of the 40 states should fall as well. But people need to be careful not to kind of go rogue and just do things on their own. It really needs to be an organized group of people. We found in New York that having a true coalition that consists of various organizations is what really helped to get things done, and that it's adoptee-led, where the adoptee voices are really coming out. So if anyone, you know, in their states wants to get something going, then I would recommend that they contact us directly at coalition at nyadopterights.org or even contact Greg directly at info at adopterightslaw.com. And then we can work on forming coalitions in other states. And I think I speak for both Greg and myself when I say that, you know, we're more than willing to be involved in helping to form those coalitions and to tell people what we found worked here in New York. Yeah. What's the message that works? That makes perfect sense. You know, people would say, well, with the DNA now solving all these adoptee cases, you would think that that would bring about changes in the laws because they would say, well, it doesn't matter anymore. It's archaic and it, it, it doesn't. But they didn't take that position in New York for some time, did they? No, it was really, it was a double-edged sword because a lot of times the response was, well, if you can do DNA, go ahead and have at it because then you don't need your birth certificate. We can hold on to it. So really the premise of it has to be equality, that non-adopted people can access this document, but adopted people cannot. And we truly are the only group of people 
at least in New York State, who are unable to access that birth record. Well, any record that's public that's available to anybody else should ultimately be available to you. Obviously, this can cause some disturbances in some families at some point or another, but really, is it the government's place to say you shouldn't reunite? Because there are plenty of birth mothers who are very anxious to meet the children they gave birth to. Right. The majority of birth mothers actually are in support of this. And really, I mean, a secret by its very definition is a thing. So people cannot be secrets. And once someone else knows of your secret, then your secret is no longer a secret. So once your child has been delivered, that doctor knows that you were an unwed mother. Your secret is no longer a secret. It's a public event. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. So when you go and you approach, say, a legislator in one of the various states that don't have open birth certificates available to adoptees, that would seem to be the initial conversation, right? Absolutely. You need to get someone who completely understands the issue of equality and understands the true definition of equality and the true definition of being an adult. By its very definition, an adult doesn't need permissions to access their birth certificate. You go online, you fill out a form, you pay your money, and, you know, your birth certificate comes in a few weeks in the mail. It's not that simple for the adopted people. She's Annette O'Connell. He's Greg Luce. And uh, thank you, guys, and congratulations on an amazing victory. I know this has been going on in New York State since the 70s. And keep us informed on what's going on in other states and how genealogists out there can help. We absolutely will. All right. Thanks so much. Hey, that's another one for the books. Thanks for joining us. Thanks also to all of our guests, Curtis Rogers, of course, from JedMatch.com, and our guests from the New York Adoptees Rights Coalition. Talk to you again next week. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.